There's a traffic jam at the door. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? I love having the kids in the worship service. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number two. It's it's so good to be back. Um, it was it was nice to relax for a little bit. There is a a weight to ministry that I cannot describe, and it was it was so fascinating. I didn't realize that it had come off, but um, Friday morning I was getting ready, and uh, all of a sudden I realized the weight of ministry was not there, and it was it was so nice to have that. The people ask you to pray for things, and, and that's that's what I want to do, and that's that's what I'm called to do, and, and I hear about people's problems and, and different things, and it, it weighs you down, uh, burdens you, but it's a, it's a good burden, and to get, but you need to get away every now and then and have that lifted away, and it, it was a good time, and um, I went to the ballet recital. I know she's only four, but she was better than anybody else. So it was a good time. But uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3 today. Next week I'm going to do an, another sermon, and then the week after that we're going to start in the book of Exodus. Now, um, I'm going to say right now 14 sermons. They're planned out, so um, that's, that's, um, you can hold me to that number, okay? Revelation and, and 14 sermons. But Revelation 2... This is, uh, this is something that has really been a burden on my heart. To be honest with you, for two weeks, I've been thinking about this and praying for this very service and praying for you that, uh, you would, that the Holy Spirit would open his eyes or open your eyes to understand his word and that you would respond appropriately wherever the encouragement is, wherever the, the rebuke is, and that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. The church in the 21st century uh, faces uh, challenges that's never faced before in America. But these, for the first time, these threats are looming on the church from the government, uh, from our own government, from, from different places in society. Social pressure such that the church no longer has favor in our society, does it? And as new as these pressures are to us, they're not new to the church. None of the pressures that we are facing are new at all. They've been common from the beginning of the church. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks words of commendation and correction to seven churches. The distinctions of the seven churches of Revelation are set out clearly. They manifest different greatnesses and frailties, but they all faced dangers. Each confronted the dangers that assaulted the church in the first century, they faced hazards of varying proportions. Uh, there was there, but there was a common threat to the health of the New Testament church from many sides. And let me say this, every church at all the time faces threats to its very health. All the time it does. And, and those dangers manifested in the first century are repeated in every age of the church, including this one. In every generation, including our own, the same perils to the spiritual strength that Jesus rebuked to the seven churches of Revelation threaten us anew. I mean, think about the list. You've read these two chapters before, right? These, these things include the lack of love, the, the lack of truth, a compromising spirit with the world, 
a lukewarm devotion, a, a double-minded conviction, and that's just to name a few. There were rebukes and encouragements given to these churches by our Lord that every church in every age must take seriously. And so my prayer is for you today that you will take the encouragement from the Lord where it is needed and you will take the rebuke from the Lord as it is needed because you know what? Churches are made of people and it's the people that makes the church the way it is. And so we're going to run through these two chapters. Now I'm not going to have you stand and read two chapters of Revelation. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to read very much scripture today because there's so much material. I want you to be in your Bibles and follow along and I'll give the verse numbers of where I'm pulling the phrases and the truths from. Just follow along in God's word as we go. But I would like to have us say a quick word of prayer and then we'll get going. Lord, I thank you for um, your word and your Holy Spirit. Lord, this this is... Um, it, it can be a, a very encouraging passage of Scripture. Encouraging, Lord, because you show us that you are a God of compassion. It's encouraging because you show us that you are the God that overcomes. Greater is he that is in the world. or he, that, than he, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Lord, uh, it's encouraging because you only rebuke those that you love. And so let us be rebuked, encouraged, and shown love today in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Revelation 2. Uh, the first church that our Lord Jesus Christ addresses is a church at Ephesus. And he says this, verse number 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now the words angel uh, describes the pastor. That's who we're talking about here. This is the messenger. He's a messenger. Christ goes on to call himself. Look at what he calls himself. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So stars refers to the leaders of the church. He said that he holds the stars in his hand, the leaders of the congregation. It, it, each leader is his servant. And the seven golden lampstands refers to the churches, and he's walking in their midst. Now, if you remember in chapter number one, He's, he's standing in the midst of golden lampstands. Now he's walking. That means he's working. He's living among these seven churches. And, and he goes on to compliment the church of Ephesus, verses 2 and 3. He says, um, he, he, he compliments them for their doctrinal soundness, doesn't he? And they took to heart the warning. Now where did this come from? Where did this doctrinal soundness come from? Well, if you remember, all the way back in the book of Acts, Paul was leaving. He, he saw the elders of Ephesus for the very last time, and he gave them some warnings. And one of the warnings was that wolves will come from within the church. The doctrinal danger comes from within the church. And they took that warning many years earlier, probably 30 years earlier, very, very um, severely and and so they watched out for the wolves and they guarded pure doctrine but they were an absolutely doctrinally sound church but verses verse number four they lost their first love now what does that mean when you lose your first love it could mean 
And a lot of people interpret this to mean that they lost their passion for Jesus Christ. That first passion they experienced when they first got saved. However, in the context of the passage, I believe that he's talking about that they lost their love for one another. Isn't that a hallmark of Christianity? If they're watching out for wolves within the church, what is going to be the natural tendency? Are you a wolf? Are you a wolf? Are you a wolf? And they lost that love for one another that they had at first. In rooting out error and expelling false teachers, they had grown suspicious of one another. I, I heard a preacher one time say something about a church. He said their theology was as clear as ice and just as cold. And uh, this describes the Ephesians. Their, their good deeds were now motivated by duty rather than love. And he gave them a command, didn't he? It, there was a, a threefold command. He told them to remember, repent, and return. He said, remember the days of your first love. Remember those days when you love one another warmly. Um, keep a firm grip on, on both poles. Uh, remember that first love, but repent of your lovelessness. Truth and love. Truth and love. It's a constant challenge to churches. It's a constant challenge for redeemed sinners because we swing the pendulum back and forth, don't we? Truth and love. Truth and love. And that's what he's, that's what he's encouraging them to do. Too often people stand for biblical truth vigorously but lovelessly. Don't they? Actually, don't we? Right? Or else what they do is they preserve apparent unity and love at the expense of truth. Now Christ tells us tells them in verse number 6 that if they do not repent, he will remove their lampstand. You know what that means? He will remove all light from that church. It will no longer be a church. A loveless church is no longer truly a church, and Christ has a right to extinguish such a con uh, congregation and you know what? Tragically, the Ephesian church ultimately succumbed, and neither the city nor the church exists today in Ephesus. And so that, that's, that's one message that we get. Let's look on, on to the next church, verse number 8, the church at uh, Smyrna. And he said this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. This designation of Christ would have been a comfort to the church because he endured persecution and still lived, didn't he? Christ endured persecution. Now, he endured persecution to death, but is Jesus alive today? He's very much alive. And that was a promise to the church as well. Christ reminded them that he transcends this world and empowers them to do the same. And this was a persecuted church. Uh, verse number 9 Look at the compliment. They faced tribulation. And what was it caused by? It was caused by those who say that they are Jews but were of the synagogue of Satan. The Christians in Smyrna were very poor. We will see in a moment also that it will be beleaguered. But these were, these were very, very poor Christians. But you know what? How things appear on the outside may not be the spiritual reality. Because the Lord complimented them, and what did he say? 
He told them that they are rich in the things that mattered most. And that's what's, that is what's most important. You know, Christ had no, no criticism for, for this church uh, in Smyrna, but he reveals his deep compassion for a people who are faithful to the Lord and suffering persecution as a result. We serve, we are in a relationship, and we worship a God who is compassionate. The Lord, the Lord, he's compassionate and merciful, isn't he? That's what the Bible says. But he gave him a command. Verse number 10, the struggling church now hears a message that they probably dreaded. Therefore, the Lord's command begins with what? Do not be afraid. The suffering in Smyrna is about to get worse. They're going to be thrown into prison and persecuted for 10 days. Now, I believe that most likely this is symbolic that the persecution will only last for a limited time. I'm not going to go into reason why, but regardless, if it's 10 days literal or 10 days symbolic, the encouragement is to persevere because they will receive eternal life. And if we become a persecuted church in a real way in North America, and we become beleaguered, and God sees fit to make us poor, and small, guess what? It doesn't matter because we're rich in the things that, that really do matter, and that is spiritual life, and we'll have eternal life. We might lose our jobs. We might be called names. We might be disrespected by our own families. Regardless, listen, dear believer, we will one day reign with Jesus Christ. In church context, we often think that, think about the congregations that we know rural congregations and such things. They, they might be small and they might be poor and we tend to think that they're, they're insignificant. And what do we do? We follow the big churches with all the money, don't we? And all the fame and all the notoriety. That's what we do. That's our human nature. And when we do that, you know what we do? We make a mistake. Because God is with the beleaguered believers, the poor and the downtrodden, isn't he? All through Scripture, he cares for the poor. And so here's that, that church at Smyrna. Be steadfast, he tells them. Let's go on. Verse number 12 to the church at Pergamon. Now this is a worldly church. This is a church that doesn't look much different from the world. Look at the characteristic of Christ in verse number 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamon write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now already this isn't looking good, is it? <laughs> this ain't good when, when Christ says that. Christ is holding the sharp two-edged sword that describes the word of God. And it's characterizing Christ as a judge and an executor. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And I want you to notice his compliment, verse number 13. He says this. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, even though they lived where Satan's throne is, they held fast uh, to the faith. Now, Pergamum, what is he talking about by Satan's throne? Pergamum is, was a center of emperor worship. They were, they were worshiping the emperor, and the Roman Empire was completely against the church. 
And anything that's against the church is satanic. And since Caesar sits on the throne, he's calling Caesar Satan, isn't he? He is. I know you were there right in the midst of emperor worship, and you held fast, but he had a, he had a criticism for this church in verse number 14 and 15. They apparently had the opposite problem of the Ephesian church. Remember Ephesus? They were doctrinally sound. Pergamum was the opposite. Rather than testing and rejecting false teachers, they uncritically accepted people who held fast to the teaching of Balaam, is what the Bible says here. It seems that people in the church of Pergamum were bowing to the social pressure of the trade guilds and participating in sacrificial meals offered to gods in order to keep their jobs. Now the day may come, and maybe the day has already come for you. some of you. I, I'm going to have to compromise on the Word of God to keep this job. And at that point, you're going to decide who is Lord of your life and who you trust. Pergamon was there. It, it seems that, that also... Balaam, if you remember the story, Balaam seduced the uh, Israelites into immorality through the, um, through the Midianites. You remember that? Okay? Seduced them into immorality. And so the implication here is that not only were the, the, pe- the people in the church of Pergamum bowing to the idolatry of the, the age, they were also committing immorality probably uh, with temple prostitutes at that time. And so here were church members that, that Jesus bought with the price of his life to pay for immorality, and they're committing immorality. Regardless, some of the believers were not remaining entirely faithful, and so Christ gave them a command. He said this, he said, repent. The only remedy for sinful behavior is to repent, isn't it? Church members have become Christ's enemies. Let me say that one more time. Church members had become Christ's enemies. Isn't that stunning? That's stunning if it's, to me if it's not to you. He threatened to unleash among them the awesome power of judgment he intended for his enemies. I'm going to unleash on you what I would only unleash on my enemies. Wrap your mind around how serious God is about sin. How serious he is about the idolatries of our life. He hates them. And nothing is going to compete with that. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Those are some serious words, aren't they? God will not bless a church that tolerates sin. Now this is a church, remember, they're standing strong for the Lord, right? In one, one or two areas. Heather and I, by the way, have, have seen this in, in uh, living color. When we were young, there was a church that we attended briefly. It was full of young people, just like this church. The, the, the music was outstanding. The preaching was incredible. But about a year after we stopped attending that church, things began to fall apart. There was immorality here. There was immorality there. There's immorality again. The, the pastor left. Another pastor came in. He was involved in immorality. And this just continued. And today, that church is just an absolutely dead church. And so you can have 
in your church, preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, vital preaching. But if that church um, tolerates idolatry and immorality, God is not pleased no matter how clear that gospel message is preached. Sobering, isn't it? We cannot tolerate sin in the church. We can be vocal in our defense of the Christian faith and yet find ourselves conforming to the idols of this world. Many times, the greatest danger to the Christian life are the most subtle. And so we must be on guard lest we prize the things of this world more than Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the the next church. Verse number 18 of chapter number 2, the church of Thyatira. Look at what he says in verse number 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are burnished bronze. Now this letter is the longest of all the letters to any of the churches written to the smallest of the seven cities. Jesus reminds them that he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. And those two ideas represent a couple things. The eyes like a flame of fire represent his all-encompassing knowledge, his omniscience, while his feet with burnished bronze represents his all-encircling power, his omnipotence. And his knowledge is fully expressed as he describes in detail their sin and its consequences. And Christ's power is fully shown in his treatment of who? who? What's a person's name? Look at your text. Jezebel, right? Jezebel and her children. But he gives them a compliment, verse number 19. He, he commends them for four categories of deeds. And I want you to notice very carefully their deeds were love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Are these all good things? All of them are. Not only that, but did you notice? They're growing in their love. Ephesus didn't even have growing love. They're growing in their faith, their faithfulness. They're growing in their service and endurance. This, this was probably the biggest church of them all, believe it or not. I mean, who doesn't want to go to a church that's growing in love, right? Who doesn't want to go to a church that has these acts of service and, and endure and they're faithful? We, 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 um, we want to go to that church, but with this kind of church, most of the time there's a certain kind of negative, and I've seen it in a lot of churches, and we see that in the next few verses, verses 20 to 22. Look at these verses with me. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants, who practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't think they had a woman in their assembly named Jezebel. I think this is very symbolic, right? Anybody name their kid Jezebel? Nobody does. Nobody did during that time either. So notice their sin. Notice what we just read in verse number 20. Their sin consisted of two parts. First, they violated biblical teaching that women were not to be teachers and preachers in the church. That was the first thing that they did. Secondly, they allowed her to teach error. Not only was she not to be 
a leader uh, in, of the whole congregation in preaching. She was also preaching air, and they allowed it all. And, and as, um, Jezebel, if you remember, by the way, in the Old Testament, what, what was she known for? Jezebel in the Old Testament was known as an egregious idolater, horrible idolater. It it's, tells you a lot about this woman leading this church when that is, the, that is the, the name that Christ gives to her. And Thyatira, by the way, Thyatira, one of the things that we know about it, it had all kinds of trade guilds. And if you remember when we, in 1 Corinthians, we talked about this, each trade guild was dedicated to a certain god. And so there, there are just lots of gods being worshipped in Thyatira. And it seems that this Jezebel encouraged participation in trade guilds even though they sacrificed to idols during their pagan uh, uh, meals. And so Christ gave them a command in verses 24 and 25. He said this. He, he graciously gave this false teacher time to repent, didn't he? That's what he said. Warned. He warned that he was going to strike her dead along with her disciples. Her disciples were the children, Jezebel and her children. Idolatry, people, has deadly consequences, doesn't it? You remember Ephesus? Remember Ephesus? They were doctrinally sound with no love. And here we have the exact opposite. We have the loving church literally growing in love but tolerating false teaching. Don't we find that true in churches today? We see the churches, they are so clear in their doctrine, and there's absolutely no love. But I think most of the time, what we see in the modern evangelical church is we see the real loving church, the real warm church that just lets almost anything go, allows false teaching in. We're not going to discriminate because uh, he's such a good guy. Why, why would we do something unloving and correct this woman in her false teaching? Why it's a lack of love to talk about this person's sin, right? You see? And that's exactly what was going on in this church. We cannot deal lightly with error or false teaching in the church. We have to be on guard against both. Now let's go to chapter number 3, verse number 1, and talk about Sardis. Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you remember your revelation, in John's original vision of Christ, the seven stars were identified as the angels of the seven churches. That's verse number 20 of chapter number 1. Now, this is talking about the, the, the leaders of the church. We already said that. The seven spirits here simply refer to the Holy Spirit himself. The imagery shows Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the church. And you know what he's doing? He's ruling. And you know how Christ is ruling? He's ruling through godly leaders and pastors. That is how Christ rules. And pastors and elders, where's the word pastor come from? In English, it comes from the word pastoral. Christ, the good shepherd, leads and rules through under-shepherds. And that's what we do. We feed the flock. We lead the flock. 
we guide the flock and we protect the flock from the wolves, from the false teaching. But we're always feeding. And that's how Christ rules. He gives them a, a criticism, verse number one. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Sardis receives no compliment from Christ, only criticism. With his infallible knowledge, Jesus pronounced Sardis a dead church. It was, it was defiled by the world. It was marked by inward decay and populated, listen, populated with unbelieving people who were playing church. This little phrase here that you have the reputation of being alive means that people, most likely it means that people in the community who were unbelievers saw all the activity of the church and they were doing things outside the church. Man, that church has got it going on. The problem is, it was a bunch of people doing things that not through the Spirit of Jesus Christ because there was no Spirit there. He says in verses 2 to 4, they're, they're just going through the motions. The church was full of deeds that appeared great, but they were simply spiritually dead members living a lie. Now, this is what's interesting. Even in a dead church, there can be some believers. And in this church, it was true. There were some believers. There were some Christians scattered like, like flowers in the desert, like light in darkness, like uh, life amongst the dead, amongst the corpses. And here's the question I want to ask. Can, is it possible for a dead but orthodox church to change? It is, isn't it? Because Sardis is the example. A few people had remained faithful. You know, I have friends who are in dead Orthodox churches. And they stay in those churches because they're trying to bring life to those churches. And sometimes God actually does call people to do that. Randy and I were with a guy that's, that, that's that way. I've asked him several times, why are you in that church? And he says, they need the gospel, right? And so God does keep some of his own sheep in those kind of churches. It must be hard. It must be very difficult. Do you know what? I want you to think about this. Nominal faith. Going through the motions is an ever-present danger in the church, isn't it? Don't we all, at one point or another, just go through the motions? We do. But that should only be a temporary thing. I want to ask you, has going through the motions been the theme of your whole Christian, so, supposed Christian life? If that has been your Christian experience, just going through the motions, it may be that there's no life inside of you either. Because when Christ is inside of you, it's not going through the motions, is it? It's this burning desire to worship him and to please him and to, and to serve him, doesn't it? And so, um, um, going through the motions is an ever-present danger, and so you, 
you have to ask yourself, am I just going through the motions? Many people profess faith in Christ, but their lives reveal that they do not likely possess faith. And if that is your experience, I would ask you, and I prayed for you, if that's your experience, that you would receive spiritual life. And you can today believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. And he says that he will save you and you'll experience life for the first time. Let's move on to Philadelphia. Verse number seven, the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Christ is described here as the one who holds the key of David. You know what this refers back to? This refers back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse number 22, when Eliakim, the prime minister to Israel's king, that he, was, he had the key of David. In other words, Eliakim, the prime minister, determined who sees Christ or who sees the king and who doesn't. He was the one who did that. And so as he controlled access to the king, coupled with the phrase here in Revelation, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Do you know what it tells us about Christ? you know what these verses tell us about Christ? Listen very carefully. It is Christ alone who has the authority to admit people into the heavenly city. Christ alone has that authority. Nobody else. And because he is holy and true, no one can ever argue with his admission of some and refusal of others because of unrighteousness. He gave them a compliment. He said that the church has little power, verses 8 to 10. He, uh, that, that the church had little power showed that the congregation was small in numbers. There were not many here, but they made an impact on the city. They were small, but they were having an impact. Christ's compliment includes three specific pledges. Look at what he says. First, he, he placed before them an open door that no one could shut. Second, he promised that hostile Jews would one day bow before their feet. And third, since they kept the word and endured, he promised to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. Now here's a question. What is that open door? What is that open door that Christ set before them? Well, many interpreters use other parts of the New Testament to say that this means this is an open door for evangelism. There's four passages in the New Testament that seem to describe an open door that way. But, but uh, as, as you mentioned last night, uh, Nick, there's this guy named Hermeneutic. Hermeneutic, and you must pay attention to him if you're going to get it right. And if you look at your context, and just flip forward real quick to chapter 4 and verse number 1, Notice what it says. After this, I looked, and behold, what? A door. And what is it? It's standing open. There's the context of the open and the closed door right there. What he is promising is entrance into heaven. Remember, Christ holds the key of of David. He controls access to that heavenly city. And if the so the open and the door 
open and closed door is simply entrance into the kingdom of heaven. While the Jews in their synagogue closed the doors here on earth, no one could deny the Philadelphian Christians entering into heaven. They are to take heart that their Lord holds the true key of David. He gives them a command, verse number 11. Look at what he says. He said, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So Christ here encourages these beleaguered Christians not to waver, but to remain faithful and persevere to the end, thereby proving the genuineness of their salvation. Uh, last night, I had this in my notes, and I didn't mention this, but somebody looked at me last night and, and gave the Jim Elliott quote that I have right here in my notes. Remember Jim Elliott, the 20th century missionary to the Aka Indians of Ecuador? He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the church of Philadelphia. Christ, our true and lasting inheritance in heaven, can never be touched nor destroyed, can he? Notice the pattern. Notice the pattern. Things are never as it actually seems. There have been two churches that seem small and insignificant and powerless. And yet Christ is encouraging, encouraging them telling them that he is at work. We cannot determine God's assessment of the church by simply looking at the outside, the physical, what's going on, can we? We cannot. And the reason we cannot is found, uh, another reason we cannot is found in the very next church, Laodicea, verse number 14 of chapter number 3. This is a church, well, we'll get there. Let's look at verse number 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness of the beginning of God's creation. Christ called himself the faithful and true witness, showing that he was able to accurately assess their spiritual condition. He also called himself the beginning of God's creation. In the, in the, in the original language, by the way, um, I'm very careful to say this, but there's a more accurate way to translate that that is more wooden but but the beginning of creation does not mean that he's like the first created but literally he is the source of all creation that's what that's what in the original language he's talking about here uh, through his power he created everything and as is as in sardis laodicea received no compliment from christ only criticism it, it, the criticism is what that they're lukewarm, right? Lukewarm only appears here in the New Testament. The best interpretation of this word would be that they are, are barren or they're un, unusable. They were good for nothing. If this interpretation is correct, Christ's threat to spit you out of, out of my mouth, by the way, the, the word literally is vomit there, vomit, means that he will judge and reject them for their self-righteousness or their self-sufficiency. And it's not, listen, it's not their lack of spiritual fervor that he's judging here. You hear that very commonly. It's, you know, the water is gross and you want to spit it out. No, the water's useless. Uh, just north, they had a, a city that had hot springs. And, and so the hot water was good for something. Ten miles south of them was a city that had cool, refreshing water. And cool, refreshing water is good for something. But lukewarm water is good for nothing. It's not usable at all. And that's what Christ is, is saying. And they, they, 
they confuse material blessing with spiritual well-being, and God called them poor. Now notice the pattern. Smyrna was poor in this world, but spiritually they were rich. While Laodicea was rich in this world and spiritually impoverished. Notice also spiritually um, that uh, they were they were clothed with righteousness. They th- I'm sorry, they thought they were clothed with righteousness, and actually they were not. And third, they thought that they had spiritual insight, but they did not. And even sadder, they didn't even know it. They didn't even realize that they had no spiritual insight. Not realizing, look at what he says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's not a very good way to describe somebody, is it? Not at all. And notice the command, verses 18 to 20. Christ commanded them to buy from him uh, three things, all of which uh, symbolize true redemption. This means true salvation. First of all, gold refined by fire, representing true salvation. White garments to cover the shame of their nakedness, which down south it's nakedness, isn't it, by the way? But I'm not from the south, so it's nakedness. Um, The shame of their nakedness, which symbolizes the putting on of righteous deeds, which we can only do with Christ. We, We robe ourselves with Christ's righteous deeds, right? And then third, to eye salve to give them true spiritual insight. They thought they had spiritual knowledge when in fact they were blind and they desperately needed Christ to open their eyes and turn from darkness to light. Now Christ said what about them? He said he's knocking at the door. Now many evangelistic approaches have been used with this, knocking at the door. But that's not, this is not an evangelistic thing. You know what he's saying? How on earth can you have a church and Christ be on the outside of the church? The church is inside, and Christ is outside knocking on the door. He's saying, hello, I'm not even in your midst. I'm on the outside, and I'm knocking for you to let me in your midst. In other words, get saved. Turn to Christ, right? And then I will come in, because this will be a true church, and I will be in your midst, in the lampstand, right? He was knocking at the door, and this can only happen when they repent. Well, you know, that's the seven churches. Let's think about our own church for just a minute as we close. When we look at our own church, you know what we see? Numbers are good and growing. Remember that metric that I I gave in, in Corinthians? Bodies building and budget okay some of you do remember that good good right numbers are good there's a good spirit offerings are good so you know what everybody would tend to say hey god's blessing is on providence bible church that indicates god's approval but you know what none of these things indicate god's approval we could have three services and triple the budget, but that does not mean that God's blessing is upon Providence Bible Church. One of my constant concerns as a pastor is that God will not be pleased and that Providence Bible Church will become unhealthy. That's a constant prayer and concern of mine.
Churches are made of people, aren't they? In people, each of us have tendencies towards certain sins and weaknesses, don't we? Spiritually, a church is only as healthy as its members, and so we must examine ourselves. If our natural bent is toward people, we will emphasize love and, and kindness to the exclusion of sound doctrine, won't we? If, if we tend towards doctrinal rightness, we can struggle with that same love and kindness. Some may struggle with base desires of sexual immorality. Others may be people pleasers, and thereby you're participating in the idolatries of our society, of our culture. And if you see yourself in any of these portraits, God is calling you, in His love and mercy, He's calling you to repent right now. He's calling you to fervent service, to patient endurance. And you know what else He's calling you to? He is calling you to love Him with all of your heart and your soul and your might. And there will be no room for these idolatries. There will be no room for this sin. Sin will be uh, horrendous in your sight. And when you love Him with all your heart, soul, and might, you know what you're going to find you do with other people? You love them as well, don't you? Right? The good news is this. That despite your struggle, Christ desires your righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so he's written to you through these seven churches. And he has written how to please him, how to correct your life, and ultimately how to glorify him in this life. You know what I find heart, uh, very heartening about this? These two chapters are very sobering, but guess what the next two chapters are? The next two chapters are a glimpse into heaven when some of these same beleaguered Christians are in heaven worshiping God Almighty. Some of them were idolaters. Some of them may have been saved and dabbled in sexual immorality. Some of them were doctrinally correct but cold as ice. Some of them were as loving and kind as you can imagine and had not very much doctrinal fidelity and tolerated a lot of sin. But they're all bought with a price and they're in heaven glorifying God. Isn't that encouraging as well? But in this life, we need to listen to the rebukes and the encouragements. Where are you today? Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and there's some things that you need to work on in your heart. Maybe repent. Maybe it's just a little bit of a course correction. God, I need to get back in your word. I need to pray fervently. I need to love more. Whatever it is, will you say yes to the Holy Spirit today? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these messages uh, to these different churches. Lord, they, they are enlightening for us because they are the common pitfalls that the church faces in all ages. They are the common pitfalls that every person in every age of the church uh, uh, experiences and, and is, is prone to. And Lord, I pray that right now we will repent. We will turn to you. I have no doubt that there are people sitting here today who actually do not have any kind of spiritual life inside of them. I ask that in your tremendous grace, in your mercy and kindness, that your Holy Spirit will... Uh, 
prick their heart and their conscience, Lord, and that they will repent and be saved today. We love you, Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen.